If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. That's where we'll pick up this morning. And Tony uh, gave a good intro talking about the faithfulness and the power of God, and we're going to discuss that this morning in one of, the, one of the verses. But Ecclesiastes 9 is where we'll be going. And I've entitled this this morning, I changed it a little bit, Men are in the hands of God and making the most of life. There's a key verse there, we'll, we'll cover that. There's the outline, and we're in that section that's in yellow. Ecclesiastes um, eight, uh, 9 this morning is in his conclusions. These, uh, this is the, con- the conclusion of the whole book. The theme verse of the whole book is in chapter 12, 13, the conclusion when all else has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. These are the two major themes in Ecclesiastes that have been carried on throughout by all the teachers. Life is a gift from God to be enjoyed, so keep focused on the giver. And life has serious limitations because of the fall of man. Let's pray if you would. Pray with me before we, we hear what God has for us out of his word. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together. We do not take it lightly that you have called us to be your very own people. We know that it was with great sacrifice, the son of your love. We thank you for Jesus giving himself for us, loving us and giving himself for us so that we might be redeemed and brought back to God and forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation in the unspeakable gift of your son, Jesus. Open our hearts to hear your word this morning, we'd ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, again, we're continuing on in this book, and we've heard some themes like this, life won't make sense at times. Uh, We need to be realists. This is kind of an intro. Life is a gift from God. He commands that we enjoy it only within the bounds of his law. We heard about that last week. But keep in mind that the good gift that we call life is tainted with the limitations of a sinful world. Life will not satisfy, but knowing God will. And at times, life won't make sense, and Christians can lose their joy. We won't always have the answer to the why questions about life, but we can be sure about this, like Tony reminded us. God is just, God is faithful to his people, and in his goodness, his mercy will follow us. His said will follow us all the days of our lives. And sometimes life will be unexplainable. But our Savior God can be trusted. And what's the conclusion of it all? Well, we see it in the verse there. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, all of that I just quoted was there. But I wanted to add this down from Tom Pennington. This may not be an exact quote from him. I think this is what I wrote down when he was preaching one time. This book, Ecclesiastes, is not the work of a cynic. It is a call to faith. The purpose of this book is to drive us to God, and that's where we always should be um, driven to whenever whenever we look at any subject. Our desire is is to be driven back to the Lord. I want to give credit again. I'm taking excerpts from Rich Dewey's uh, Home Fellowship Studies. Uh, William Barrick, uh, professor at TMS, Old Testament and Philip Ryken are some of the men that I, that I quoted heavily um, or will quote heavily this morning. Um, the first point, 
in God's hands. This is in verse 1. Follow along as I read verse 1. Solomon the preacher writes, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Solomon says, I have taken to my heart. He's applied, he's applied more than just his brains to the search for life's paradoxes, uncertainties, and enigmas. He has not just been an, his has not just been an intellectual pursuit, but an experiential one. His conclusions have come through emotional, sensual, physical, and spiritual experiences. Certainly, we see in verse 1 that Solomon does affirm the sovereignty of God. And what, what has Solomon searched out? He says in verse 1, I've taken all this, all this. What is that, all this? He says, I've taken all this to heart. And I believe it's everything that has come up to this point so far that we've looked at in this book and what has come in the rest of the book, or in other words, um, the whole of human existence and earthly life under the sun. That's what he, he's looking at life under the sun. And here's his affirmation, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Philip Ryken said that these words of Solomon leave God's people in God's hands. Where else is a better place to be, to be left in the hands of God? Ryken goes on to say, the Bible uses the image of the hand of God to express God's power, God's love, God's supervision, and God's control. God really, as the old song said, God really does have the whole world in his hands. And for the faithful believer in Jesus Christ, the hand of God is an image of comfort and assurance. And though at the end of this verse you see where he says man does not know whether it will be love or, or, or hatred or anything or whatever awaits him, Solomon's conviction, even though he refers to the unpredictability of God's favor, and we do not know what awaits us. None of us do because we we're not all wise. Solomon's conviction is that the power of God controls the lives of God's people, and that's why we can rest in the mercies of the Lord. We and all that we are doing are in God's hands, and we must remember that no matter what comes our way in our lifetime. The, um, whoops, the second point that I'd like to cover here is in verses 2 to 3, and it's the same fate happens to all. Look, look with me in verse 2. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their, lifetime, throughout their lives. And afterwards, they go to the dead. Solomon, in the beginning of verse 2, uh, says it, it is the same for all. Every person, regardless of their level of spiritual maturity or commitment, falls prey to the fallen character of mankind. Every individual will someday experience one universal condition. And Solomon lists some of the examples of the kinds of people, as we noted here uh, in verse 2. He, um, he says it is the righteous. He compares the righteous with the wicked. The good and the clean are compared 
the good and clean are compared to the unclean, the person who offers a sacrifice and the person who doesn't, the good person compared to the sinner and the one who swears or the one who vows compared to the person who makes no vows. In his observation of all these types of people, Solomon concludes that there is one aspect of life that is an inescapable reality. It's an inevitable certainty, an event that will, where we will all be treated the same. And the point is, and what he is saying here, is that everyone without exception will face death. And briefly in verse 3, Solomon says of death, did you notice there he says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. This is an evil, he says, about, uh, about this, uh, every, this coming to everybody. But it's not that God has done something evil, as God could never do that. Barak says in his commentary that the Hebrew meaning of this word evil in such context comes with the scope of meaning misery. This, this is a misery. In his observations, this is what he's seeing. Yes, everyone dies and death appears to be terribly unfair in that it hits everyone equally regardless of how God-fearing or rebellious a person might be. This, of course, is the tragic result of the fall of man and the curse of Genesis chapter 3. This is the evil, the misery in all that is done under the sun as, as he's reminding us, the preacher is reminding us through this book. And we're reminded in Romans 5.12, aren't we? Therefore, just as through one man or through Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sin. And then at the end of verse 3, when, he, when he's kind of summing up this little sec section here, he says, afterwards they go to the dead. You see that at the very end of verse 3? Afterwards they go to the dead. Literally Solomon is saying, and afterwards, after their lives, to the dead. That's what he's saying, to the dead. I mean, it is abrupt. Death is, a, is abrupt. This is a part and parcel of the fallen world in which we live. And, you know, even in the, in the light of that, and people, people see people dying. People see the funerals. They attend the funerals. They know, they know that it's going on in the world. It's mind-blowing to me that even though people know that death is imminent, as Dwayne Garrett says, they fill their lives with distractions. I thought that was insightful. They fill their lives with distractions of a thousand passions and squander what little time they have with insignificant worries. And Solomon's going to develop those thoughts in the later chapters, and I, I won't hear. But that phrase, the distractions of a thousand passions, unbelievers will do anything to get the reality of death off of their minds. They won't talk about death. They won't look at death. They won't accept it as a reality, reality for them. They don't want to face it. And certainly, they don't want to prepare for it. They'll prepare for everything else in life, how to buy a home, what school to go to, who to marry, but they will not prepare for death. And the reality is, is that it is appointed or it is laid up for men to die once. And after this comes the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. What unbelievers have tried to avoid all of their life Death itself will come to them with an eternity separated from God, and that is all awaiting them, sadly. But in comparison, what about us, the believers? What about those in this room that have been saved by the grace of God? Well, we know that death is inevitable, but we face it biblically. We face it uh, realistically. We face it in a spiritual way. The Apostle Paul helps us in Philippians 1. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. 
To die is gain. I am hard-pressed, Paul said. I've got, I've got these two directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I can go and be with the Lord, that's so much better, or stay here and serve, and serve you. Um, it's interesting, though, is when you read Paul's words like that, and there are many of them in the, in the New Testament, Christians talk about death. Christians study it in Scripture, and believers prepare for it when? While they are yet alive. What's the hope of every believer? Well, we, we die in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, and by God's grace, we have properly prepared to die by asking Jesus Christ to forgive us our sins. Now, while we are alive, by the grace of God, yes, salvation is of the Lord, Jonah said, Jonah 2, uh, verses eight, verse 8 and 9. And by trusting Christ to raise our, we also trust him to raise our dead bodies to eternal life. And when we breathe our last, we will be ready to die with a full confidence in Christ. So yes, it happens to all, but we are blessed with the perspective that God gives us from his word that we have hope. We have hope beyond this life. Point number three, better alive than dead. Look with me in verse four. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read, read through this chapter, and if you read it ahead of time, there's one phrase that is just so picturesque and jumps off the, 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 the page to me, one phrase there. It's that one, surely a live dog is better, is better than a dead lion, and we're going to get into that in a bit. For the living know what they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have all perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Like I said earlier, most people outside of Christ avoid talking about death or even thinking about it, but the preacher Solomon, even here in this chapter and even in these verses that we're looking at, the preacher is talking about it a lot. And in these verses in our chapter, Solomon again confronts us with our own mortality. And like I said, interestingly, in comparing life and death, he springs on this, this memorable proverb, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Philip Ryken said of this, and I have a quote. I think I have it for the... No, I don't have it, sorry. The lion is a noble beast, he said, quote. You can look at Proverbs 30.30. This was especially true in biblical times when the lion served as the royal insignia of the house of David and the emblem of our Messiah. Look at Genesis 49.9. By contrast, few animals are more despised than dogs, at least the dogs in the Bible time. Some people are fond of dogs, but in those days they were considered filthy animals. We're not talking about a household pet, but contemptible scavengers, end quote. Uh, even those in this room that are, that are dog lovers have to, com uh, have to admit um, there's no comparison between a dog and a lion when it comes to size and, and just beauty and strength and all. I mean, when people go to the zoo or to the circus, they're not rushing to see the skunks and the hyenas, right? Um, they want to see the lions. But the situation would change if the lion happens to be dead. In that case, the dog is an attraction because at least it's alive. And what is Solomon conveying to us? 
Well, I believe the simple point is it's better to be alive than dead. In the light of all that he's saying in this book, where, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more, why? Or I could put it this way, living, living is better than dying. Why? Death is an obliterator. Look at some of the problems he, he mentions about death in verse 5. Death first uh, brings ignorance. The dead do not know anything, he says. Those who are in the place of the dead, they don't know anything regarding what's happening on the earth. At the end of verse 6, it's inevitable. As soon as we die, we forever forfeit, like he says at the end of 6, our share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon's not denying the afterlife, uh, but is describing the total permanent end that death brings to our earthly existence. A person can only, and here's the point, a person can only enjoy God's under-the-sun gift of this life, and we'll hear more about it. Um, it's, it's in this life. It's while we are alive. There's hope in this life. Another problem he mentions here is death brings irreparable loss, nor have they any longer a reward, he says there in verse 5. Not only did the dead not know anything about life under the sun, they also gain no more reward than what they've already gained in their lifetime. And of course, when we look at that's true for the believer, whatever is laid up, our treasures are laid up, they are stored up in heaven. But for the unbeliever, they will not receive any heavenly reward since they have died outside of Christ. And he gives us one more thing, observation of death. death. Death brings oblivion. Their memory is forgotten, he says. I mean, no one remembers the dead pretty much after they're gone. Oh, they may remember, they may remember the dead for uh, five years, uh, 10 years, 20 years. What about 500? What about 1,000 years from now if the Lord tarries? We will be forgotten. And if we look at the end of verse 6 again, we come to see that everyone's love, hate, and zeal perish from the earth at the time of their death. Life will continue on without us. We no longer participate in the events that mark the passing of time and the history of the human race. But the wise person rightly understands that the opportunities and joys of this brief life only happen once. And I'm going to talk to you about how we practically can seize that or, or apply that in our lives. I like, I like uh, Rich Dewey's comment. Yeah, here it is. The only rational basis for having hope while living, when one knows that he is soon to die, is the knowledge that what is under the sun is not everything, and not, every, and not even the most important thing. Here, the preacher is hinting again at the spiritual realm which transcends the earthly life on this planet. It is how our lives count for eternity that makes life worthwhile and hopeful. Verses 5 and 10, they, they deal with, with death, are not teaching soul sleep, his point in both of these verses implied is that you can only accomplish anything of lasting value while alive. After death, it is too late. And I like uh, Riken gives us a more, we can, he's going to end this section with a more hopeful note. He says, when we consider all the things that we lose through death, the people whom we love and all the little joys of life on this planet, it ought to make us appreciate the fact that we are still alive and breathing. However difficult life may be, there's life under the sun, however difficult life may be, and at least it is better than the alternative. Where there is life, there is hope. 
And I think that kind of lays a foundation for some of the practical aspects of, um, of this next section that we're moving into, which is making the most of life, verses 7 through 10. Follow along as I read that section, please. Go to, he says in verse 7, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil and in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Sheol there is not hell, as some mistakenly say. It's just the place of the dead. And that's what I was talking about. That's where um, it's referenced in the Old Testament as the place of the dead. As we've considered Solomon's writings in this book so far, it is true that he has said a lot about vanity, uh, vexation of spirit, striving after the wind. But on the other hand, as we see in this section right here, with all the blessings that Solomon had received in his life, in his lifetime, it's no surprise that he also has a lot to teach about joy because joy is a part of life also. Mingled with the toil and difficulty and despair of a fallen world, there are also many things that we're able to enjoy. We can't escape it in a fallen world. Life is bitter and it's sweet. And if we miss that perspective, we fail to experience life as it actually should be lived. Solomon sees life with all, sees life with all its complexities and challenges, and he writes this book so that after we look at all that he's looked at, and as we consider all his conclusions, after looking at all of those things, we might get it also. And we might get the right perspective of life, and we might uh, learn how to live the right way and approach life in the right way, and we might be able to be encouraged. In order for us to get what the preacher's wisdom, to get Solomon's wisdom, we need to look at both the optimism, so to speak, and the pessimism, so to speak, and keep his observations within that petri dish, that, that experiential thing that he went through looking at life under the sun. Yes, he does repeat the phrase in this book, all is vanity. This too is futility. This is, you know, uh, chasing after the wind. But here in verses 7 through 10, Solomon does come to the conclusion that there, there, that there is joy to be had in this life. And we need a proper, balanced view of life under the sun. And that's why I'm going to park it a little bit longer here in this section. What we have here in these verses is Solomon's call to joy. In the majority of the times, when you go back and you look at all the times when Solomon talks about eating and drinking for this reason. There's, there's, they're called the enjoyment passages here in this book. Every time we see those, for the most part, it is important to notice that in each of those, God is at the center. God is the one that has given us life, and he's given us a life to enjoy. But the Lord is at the center. And I'm going to give you, let me give you some examples. Why should we enjoy eating and drinking in our, in our labor and so on? If you want to jot these down, I can't remember if I put them on your sheet. 224, because it is from the hand of God. 313, because it is the gift of God. 
That's why eating these enjoyment passages. 520, because God keeps us occupied with the gladness of our hearts. And here in our text today, for God has already approved your works. Though Solomon may be a bit frustrated with life in a fallen world, he still acknowledges the gifts that we receive in these enjoy passages. They come from the hand of God. And since this is true, and God has approved our work, 7B, as we see that up on the screen, or God has approved what we do in our redeemed, sanctified lives before him, then our eating and drinking enjoy the blessings of God upon us, don't they? It's God, God has intended this for us. Riken says the enjoyments of life are not guilty pleasures, but godly pleasures. I like that. Because life is a gift from God and it is meant to be enjoyed. And we keep that in balance with life under the sun. And everything doesn't go the way that we, we think it ought to and so forth. And we don't understand it. But we live with that proper balance. These enjoyments are not guilty pleasures, but godly pleasures. Or at least they ought to be. A merry heart has God's approval. It is part of his gracious will for our lives. So, Solomon goes here, and there's, there's four points that we're going to consider, maybe some more than uh, others in this section. In chapters nine, uh, chapter 9, 7 to 10, what are these pleasures in life that God has given Christians, his people, to enjoy? And I think these are fill in the blanks on your sheet. The first one is contentment. I know this is a little small, but um, he says there in verse 7, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, we are to enjoy the basic pleasures of life. Now, I'm going to go down through them, and then we'll come back um, and explain a couple of them. Comfort is the next one. We are to enjoy the basic comforts of life. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Next one, companionship. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. We're to enjoy the pleasures of marriage and family life for the one that God has, for those in this room that God has blessed us to have that, or if you're going to have that in the future. And then the fourth one, uh, I couldn't come up with a really good C word that began with a C, but I came, I came up with calling. Calling. We ought to enjoy whatever God has called us to do, and I'll explain that more when we get, when we get to verse 10. I'd first like to go back to number three. And I think number three is, is, is crucial for uh, the men in this room that are married. Um, our wives typically, typically get it quicker than we do. Um, we're sometimes the husbands. It takes a bit longer. Uh, husbands, can I encourage you? It says that we are to enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting lives. Can I encourage you? to this, this is a call from God to enjoy your wives. This means spending time with her, together as friends. Life is demanding under the sun, hard and busy at times, but I want to encourage you to carve out some time to do things together that you both like to do. Sacrifice an afternoon and maybe take your wife to something she likes to, you, to do, and it might not float your boat. Get away, the two of you. Purposely speak affectionately to each other. Value her. Cherish her. And focus on 1 Peter 3, 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. 1 Peter 3, 7. And what that means is you may need to take some time 
uh, to take your needs, put them on the elevator, send them down to a lower floor and go to the floor that your wife would like to, like to go to, spending some time thinking about what, what really um, satisfies and helps her. Enjoy your fleeting life with her. You ought to be showing you esteem her better than yourselves and certainly model what uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now sometimes I used to have a pastor and when he would uh, preach, he would be like a machine gun and he would be giving all kinds of data and all kinds of hard teaching. And every once in a while he would just back up and do something that would kind of break it up a little bit. I get to break it up a little bit here. Um, in Sunday school, I can get it's Sunday school, I can get away with this. Who are those kids? <laughs> Who are those kids? That was 1971, 52 years ago, the first summer that Deb and I ever met. And I am certainly not going to show you some of these pictures, not so that we toot our horn. God has been so gracious to us over all of these years. But that's the first summer we met. And this is four years later when we were married. And um, I have had not only the honor, but the extreme joy and the extreme pleasure of being married to my best friend since high school, uh, Deborah. And again, we celebrated... Uh, about 12 days ago, our 48th anniversary, and we have, in a measure, been able to experience not perfection but direction. By God's grace, we give praise to the Lord, and I and I know this is true for the other elders, for Pastor Tom and his um, uh, his wife Sheila, and for many of the men that are in this room. You model this with your wives. Uh, the point that I'm trying to get across here is that it hasn't, I, I hear so many people disparagingly talk about marriage. To me, it has been one of the most blessed gifts, and I have enjoyed it. Yes, it's been difficult. There's been times and uh, we've had to work at it. But um, again, that's where it started. That's where we were about four years ago. It's a fleeting life. And I get to enjoy her during that. And I just kind of gave that to you for those of you that are couples in this room. But now let's go to the verse and for everybody. Did you notice the first word in verse 7? Here it is. Go. Don't miss this. The very first word, go, conveys a sense of urgency. This is not descriptive. This is an imperative. We are hereby commanded to eat and drink with joyful hearts. And as we go through the list of all these pleasures, we need to keep a proper perspective. And in my lesson today, I'm not, not throwing out the what we're supposed to do in these verses, but really want to focus on the how. That's important. As we eat and drink, as we put on clean clothes and anoint ourselves with oil, perfume, or, or cologne, enjoying our wives, doing all the work that we do with all of our might, focus on the how. What's the motive behind it? What is it? Why are we doing it? Is it a drudgery? Is it a, just a duty for us to do? Or do we enjoy doing it? And do we enjoy these aspects of life that Solomon is, is teaching us here? One commentator put it about this word. Um, he said, this very first word is a wake-up call. When life doesn't make sense, don't lose your focus on enjoying life. 
a most precious gift from God. There's no time to waste. Stop complaining. Stop nursing anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Get over your anxiety. Stop looking for answers in yourself and others. Don't let the uncertainties of life throw a wrench in your life's gears. Trust God and do something for Christ. William Barrick, I used this, um, this quote last week, and it kind of fits well, and I thought I'd bring it back again. Solomon's point is that human beings ought not waste their God-given joys by seeking to usurp the authority or work of their creator. Fretting over the brevity and seeming unfairness of life brings no joy, no peace, no rest, no solutions. God's wise bestowment of all things stands behind all that happens under the sun. No one can understand the ultimate reasons for what happens because even the wisest is but a fool by, by comparison to God. We should not beat our heads against the wall trying to figure out life. Solomon has told us here that we ought to enjoy life. But there's one of, the, one of these other topics um, that I want to discuss is, is the one that's in verse 9. He says, there is something else we can enjoy, that, and that is our work. Solomon mentions it at the end of verse 9, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And he's going to mention it again in verse, t- uh, verse 10. But our toil under the sun, this doesn't necessarily refer to the backbreaking labor in the heat of the day, but a lot of the commentators point to the fact that this is just the regular calling of God upon our lives, or the regular calling of our earthly existence. It's whatever God has called us to do. Whether we labor in the food industry, education, sciences, finances, construction, medicine, ministry, or homemaking, don't miss this. God has graciously given us good work to do. And our work is a gift from God. And yep, as a gift from God, our work is meant to be enjoyed. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. We're being told, whatever your hand finds to do, uh, a paraphrase of that, of whatever your hand finds to do, is whatever lies near at hand. Whatever God has put near at, at your hand. Do that with all your might. We're to give ourselves to life with its joys and its responsibilities, and according to our abilities and, and our circumstances. Don't, don't compare yourself with others. It's what God has given you to do individually. Do it with all your might. Go for it. When we have the opportunity, we, we should work with all of our strength. One commentator said that life is supposed to be active and energetic. Do it to the glory of God. Don't waste your hours and days and weeks in idleness, slothfulness, and unfulfilling distractions. I seriously want you to answer this question, not openly, but just in your, in your mind, in your heart. I want you to answer this question. Are you giving God 100% or the best of your working time or to what he's given you to do, or are you giving him scraps, just something less than the very best? I believe verses 7 through 10 here are our key for our understanding how to practically live out what um, live out Solomon's uh, observations for us. I'm going to let um, Rich Dewey close off this section here with this quote. These verses are similar in some respects to several New Testament passages 
that teach that the Christian is to live life joyfully. Philippians 4. Remember, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. The most joyful aspect of life is the recognition that there is more than what is under the sun. We live in the light of eternity, which enables us to overcome the pessimism that is otherwise inevitable when contemplating the fact that all men, good and evil, die. These passages are important refutations of the idea of asceticism, which is, which is disciplining your body um, uh, to try to be more holy, to earn favor with God, to try to earn salvation. It's not that. And in effect, um, these, it says that what we need to do is to live in the fear of God and we are foolish if we don't enjoy his gifts to us in this life. I, I thought that last phrase was super important. We're foolish. We're not living wisely as God intended us to if we don't enjoy his gifts in this life. All right, moving on to the next section. Life's inescapable ironies, verses uh, 11 and 12. Solomon wrote, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. An irony. An event that seeming, seems deliberately contrary to one that is expected. And he gives us some examples here. Did you notice? He says the swift might not win the race. The warriors might not win the battle. The wise might not obtain food. The discerning might not gain wealth or earn a living. And the skilled might not find favor. And don't forget, did you notice in verse 11? I, again, Solomon's observation. Again, I saw this where? Under the sun. Under the sun. Uh, as a matter of fact, that phrase, under the sun is in each section of every one of these points just, to, just for, so that we keep everything in perspective. Life under the sun and yet enjoy life that, that God has given to us. And that under the sun is uh, at the end of verse 3, the uh, beginning of verse 3, the end of verse 6, the middle of verse 9, the middle of verse, I mean the end of verse 9 and the beginning here uh, of um, verse 11. And again, you'll notice it, it's at the beginning of verse 13. These ironies in verse 11 contribute to the unpredictability of life. Each of them states a negative first as a means of emphasis. And Solomon mentions these five, five types of people that really you would think would be winners, the swift, the warriors, wise, and so forth. They would be the winners. We won't go through all of them, but I'm going to give you a couple of examples just so that you see the pattern here. The, the first one, the swift might not run the race. There's no guarantee that the fastest person in a race or a chase will be the victor. Um, if I remember the, uh, correctly, I think the tortoise beat the hare, right? No, that's not biblical. Let me, let me talk to a biblical one. The biblical example, how about 2 Samuel chapter 2? Do you remember Ahas, Asahel and, and Abner? There's a war there, and Asahel is described as one who could run like a gazelle, and he pursues after Abner in battle. And if you remember the story, there's no way that Abner can outrun him. And Abner turns around and warns him, if you, uh, you need to stop. You need to not chase after me. But Abner, because Abner has a weapon, he knows how to use it. And Asahel wouldn't give up. He overtakes the swift, 
overtakes Abner the slow, and Abner impales the faster man with the back end of his spear. How about number two? The warrior might not win the battle. It's not given that the strongest man wins the fight. And sometimes the weaker man wins. Can you think of a biblical example? Of course, your mind goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. David, the younger, weaker boy, young man, kills the nine-and-a-half-foot-tall ferocious beast of a warrior called Goliath. And we have all these other examples that you can see. You can go through these, and you can see, and I'm going to kind of flesh out a couple of these. But at the end of verse 11, he says, for time and chance overtake them all. I mean, the people don't win because time and chance overtake them all. Solomon saw all this, and he concludes that human ability has no guarantee for success of life. Disaster can hit anyone. The market can crash, a tornado can hit a neighborhood, there can be a massive layoff. But we know that all God works all things according to his will, according to his purposes. And no matter if we're smart, strong, gifted, skilled, or whatever, what we call bad things can happen to us, but we know that it is God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his mercies. What I like about this portion right here is that even though we're not able to escape the misfortunes of life, we live in this broken, twisted, upside-down world. God in his mercy tells us here in this very book that we shouldn't be surprised about that. We shouldn't be surprised when life doesn't make sense and misfortunes come and things don't happen the way and turn out the way that we think they should. God tells us that we can trust in him in all things. All right, last section, verses 13 to 18. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor wise man, so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise, heard in quietness, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but the one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom forms the the theme of this final section here. Either the word wise or wisdom occurs seven times, and you can look in those, those verses and, and find them. Uh, in this case here, there was a specific event, a besieged city, a wise citizen, verse 14 and 15, played a key role in it. And on the one hand, we see uh, that happen, that he, he, uh, his wisdom produced good and he saved their lives. But on the other hand, under the sun, despite his good deed done in a fallen world, People are fickle, and fame is fleeting, and the deeds of the righteous can be forgotten. And as Solomon winds up this, this, um, this passage here, he's, he's uh, talking about wisdom being prioritized. He says that will you, uh, wisdom is more valuable than physical or military strength. Brains are better than bronze, so to speak. And this is certainly true when, when we as believers attempt to counsel and guide people with the godly wisdom that we've received from him by the Spirit of God in his word, and especially when it ends up 
good and when people listen and they heed and they go in the right direction. I think Solomon, uh, you know, he's the writer of Proverbs also, right? And he's saying in this section, just like he repeatedly did in Proverbs, if we are wise, we will glean from the wise. We will listen to the wise counsel and become more wiser. And this is implied in this section. I think there's one um, commentator that I can conclude with that helps us out here. And he said, the two principles are that wisdom is better than strength. And in spite of the existence of a wise man, he is soon and often forgotten. That is, people don't value him even when he has saved them. Fallen mankind is, is by nature selfish and not thankful for the good deeds done to him by either man or God. All of this is a reminder of the cursed state of the world as we know it, and we should be driven by thinking about this to long for heaven, to long for the celestial city. Okay, what I need to do here is just quickly, I will not be able to go through all of this. I've given it to you on, on page two so that you can go home and you can look at this and take it as a, up as a study. It's really a whole lesson in its own, but I thought I'd like to, to give you something after you think about, you know, there's two thoughts here today. Enjoying life. Go for it. Do it with all your might. Everything that comes your way, do it to the glory of God. And then the wisdom. A wis you know, um, Philip Ryken wrote a book, and it's called Ecclesiastes, Why uh, Everything Matters. And in the light of all that we've heard in this chapter, what's the wisest way to use the time that we have left? That's his question. Having seen wisdom exemplified at the end of this chapter, how should it be applied? And firstly, we need to give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, repent. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved by God's grace. Salvation is God's work. It's a needful work. We need to be converted. We need to be changed. We need our stony heart to be plucked out and to be given a, a heart of flesh so we call upon the Lord. And I know this says, some of you may have trouble with this phrase, this is the most important and wisest thing that anyone can ever do. By that wisest thing, that's the most prudent thing, the most important thing in our life. We can plan for so many other things in life, like I said earlier. What house to buy, who to marry, what school to go to, what church to attend. We give lots of thought. Even, I think some people give more thought to what car they're going to buy than their eternal soul. And people, uh, especially if there's somebody in this room that is not a believer, trust in the Lord and call upon him to be saved. And secondly, ask God for wisdom for the believers here. James 1.5 says, if you lack it, ask for it. It's part of, you know, be reminded, though, that the primary way that God answers our prayer for wisdom is by giving us his son, Jesus, who became to us wisdom, wisdom from God. And then thirdly, you can't see this. I'm going to put all this up on the screen. Um, it's on your page. You can see it there. Having become a follower of Christ, he says here, Though our days are numbered, we face uncertain times, and even though time and chance will happen to us all, there are many things wise believers, by God's grace, can do under the sun, which are. So, under the sun, that's the whole idea. Our days are numbered, yes. We face uncertain times, perplexities. We don't know the answers. We don't have the power or the capability. Time and chance is going to happen to us. There's still things that we can do and enjoy doing them. And they're all listed there. Be thankful for God's blessings. Be content with what you have.
Be prayerful about every difficulty. Be generous and faithful in doing God's work. I mean, if we feel uncertain about our future, we should give more of our stuff and more of ourselves away for the kingdom because only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not useless, that work that we do. Everything you do for Christ will last. And lastly, God's people should be hopeful about the future. Knowing that time and chance happen to all should teach us to put our hope in our God because he is the only one who knows and controls our futures. Remind yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. We may not know our time, but one thing we do know is we know the Lord Jesus. We know his character, we know his person, and we know what he's going to do. He reigns, he wins, he, make, he will make everything right one day, and we are remarkably privileged to spend eternity with him. I trust that the, the, the lesson today kind of brings it together when we, when we look at this perplexing book with all the talk about vanity and, and the pessimism and all of that, it's got to be kept in its right perspective and its right balance. Life under the sun, yes, but enjoy this life that is a gift from God to us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time and this lesson. We pray that it, it, it might sink home to us in our hearts that, that we might get it, that we might see even even in this word that we, we saw with a sense of urgency in verse 7, to go, to be engaged, to be energetic, to do something, help us, help us to live our lives in that, with that motive and, that, and with that energy that you give us by your grace. Lord, help us to do whatever our hand finds to do, whatever is close by that you've given to us, whatever the calling of our God is upon our lives, may we do it with all our might, to the glory of Jesus Christ, and may he be praised for time and for eternity. And we thank you in his name. Amen.